Goldman Sachs, one of the most successful banks of all times. And David Salomon, as the CEO, is one of the most influential people in global finance. David, we are honored to have you with us. Well, thank you. I'm delighted to be with you today. So one of the things that really impressed me was when I sent you an email to uh, ask whether you wanted to join the podcast. You personally answered within five minutes. And I thought, wow, that's the kind of stuff that really impresses me because uh, I think speed is a mindset. So what do you? Um, what is your view on speed? Well, first, with respect to your email, the reason it came back in five minutes is I was probably sitting at my desk doing emails at the moment that you emailed. I, I, I don't know that I can... I can live up to that standard uh, as people hearing this email me, but I do, I do believe that there's an, an underlying point there, and I, you know, I operate with this. I respond to all my emails personally, and I try to do it, um, you know, real time or same day. And you know, I think this comes from a client orientation that you know I've grown up serving clients and a client business. Goldman Sachs is focused on serving our clients and speed, intensity, commitment, being available, showing up, these these things matter. And one of the ways you show up is you're responsive um, and you treat everybody exactly the way you, you want to be treated yourself. And so I think I think being responsive in the context of phone calls and emails and all of that communication, I think it matters. And I think it's I think it's a mindset that starts with a client service mindset. And um, and I think that's really you know, culturally core here at the firm. And I, I think that's the way I've been trained. I think that's the way I've grown up and it continues today. So what does a day look like for you? I, I, I hear rumors, for instance, that you, you wake up early in the morning and you, and you work out. I, I do. I, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm not a guy that sits still very often. And so, you know, exercise and movement and activity um, is a big part of my life. And so, you know, a typical morning, if I was in New York and, and this morning would be one is, you know, I'm up, you know, I'm up five forty-five or six o'clock in the morning, and I'm in the gym. I happen to have a gym at my apartment, so I'm, you know, I'm in, at the gym in my apartment. Or if the weather's nice, I'm out. You know, I'm outside doing something. But just, hmm. you know, forty-five minutes or an hour to, you know, be moving, get a sweat up, and you know, get something going. And um, I, I just find it clears my mind. It gives me a gives me a chance to get going in the day. And um, and then, you know, generally a quick shower. It doesn't take me very long to do my hair. So, you know, I can get dressed <laughs> and get out, of the, get out of the house in about 15 minutes. And um, I usually show up in the office around 7.45 in the morning. Mm. And um, I live downtown in New York, close to the office. And then the day's off and running. The day is generally pretty full and back-to-back um, with a variety of, of, of different things. It can be strategic, um, and you know, focused on the business broadly, it can be focused on our people, it can be focused on clients, but the day is generally pretty full. Um, most days during the week, um, I have a call, uh, usually that's at 5.30 or 6 o'clock, it can be a call or a meeting with John Waldron, uh, my chief operating officer, and, um, and Dennis Coldman, my CFO, and John Rogers, my chief of staff, where we go over an agenda things we're all trying to drive, make sure we stay connected each day, and then that's usually followed with a dinner, either with people internally at the firm or with clients, and you know, back home in bed, rinse, wash, and repeat. So when you when you look at um, what you do during the day, what do you think is that makes you um, an effective leader? Well, I think I, I I think being an effective leader is less about what you do in the day and more about what you do over time and who you are um, as a person, as a business, as a business person, and and you know how you interact, you know, broadly. You know, I've thought about this a lot during the pandemic. Leadership, one of, one of the important tenets of leadership is generally when you're exerting leadership on an organization um, or on people broadly, 
you're you're taking them where they don't want to go. Yeah. If you're if you're taking them to a place that they want to go on their own anyway, they don't really need your leadership. So give, so, an, so give an example of a place where people don't want to go where you take them. Well, I, you know, first of all, just looking at our organization broadly, you know, organization is a 150-year-old organization, and I'm a steward of that organization, but part of my job is to lead it in a direction that I think strengthens it, hmm. and leaves it stronger and better than it was when my stewardship started. And so for me, that required, you know, a mindset that was a little longer term in nature, a little more investing in the future of the organization broadly. And so if you think about this organization, historically, this organization was a private partnership for 130 years. And the way private partnerships work is they really work on a year-to-year basis because the whole incentive arrangement is for the benefit of the partners each year. And you you don't know two years later whether you're going to be a partner, so you're really you're really focused on what's happening, you know, that year or the next year, you know, as a partner, because you did what you did. At the end of the year, the organization paid all the people, and then what was left went to the partners as equity in the business. And mm. so, you know, a partnership has a tendency to breed a shorter-term mindset. And Goldman Sachs made a transition from being a partnership to a public company in 1999 when it went public. But from 1999 to 2008, the firm grew 17% compounded on the top line. And that allowed the firm to operate as a public company exactly the way it did as a private partnership because everything was working. When you're growing you know, that fast on the top line, everything works. You, you, know, you think you're brilliant because everything, everything's all working when you have that kind of growth. Mm. Um, another question on leadership. You, um, you are known, of course, not only as the CEO of Goldman Sachs, but also as uh, an accomplished DJ. And I think you said that uh, it's important to bring you know, your authentic self to work. Tell us what it does to you as a leader to kind of uh, level with, um, with the rest of the people? Well, I, 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 I think, and this goes to what I was talking about before when you're asking about leadership broadly, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to take people to a place where they don't want to go. One of the ways, you know, to help people think about differently things differently is for people to be able to relate to you, hmm. um, for you to be relatable, you know, to them directly. You know, one of the things I, I, I just observe, and this is certainly, this is certainly, evolved a lot as I, you know, talk to and interact with a lot of of my peers. If you go back 25 years ago, you know, the CEO of a big public company was almost up in an ivory tower, kind of isolated and removed um, and and almost untouchable. And um, we live in a much more transparent world and people want to be able to relate to the people that are leading them. And I think one of the things, and this was not planned because the, the you know, my, my DJing and music was a hobby hmm. and it only got exposed because I became more visible as a professional. I mean, my friends knew, but, but it wasn't something that was really visible broadly because I wasn't a visible guy until, you know, I, I, I had a job that made me more, you know, visible in the business community as a public figure. But I noticed that people's behavior in the organization shifted as they knew a little bit about me as a real person. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I find now that, that, you know, that young people are just much more comfortable coming up and talking to me. Um, and they, it usually starts with, you know, hey, I like your music, or hey, I want to talk about music. It doesn't start with, hey, I want to talk about business. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, that to me, I just, it, it's just easier to connect. And so I'm sure as a 60-year-old guy who's the CEO of a big company, you know, if you're a 24-year-old employee, and by the way, 50% of our employees are in their 20s. When mm-hmm. you look around the world at our 45,000 employees, I think having senior leadership at the firm 
that's more human, more authentic, more approachable, I think it helps our organization. And I think I think others, you know, I think others in other organizations, as I talk to others of, you know, that are my peers, I think, you know, people are agreeing that 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 just being yourself, being a human being helps you you know, lead an organization. And so, so, for, so for sure, so for sure, we need to tell the young people on the on the program here that they should just uh, keep on DJing. Well, I wouldn't say that if if they're a DJ, they should keep on DJing. But what I would say, and I think it's absolutely true, is there's no reason why you shouldn't pursue things in your life that you're passionate about. I agree entirely. And having a very very serious business career and pursuing personal passions. You know, one has nothing to do with the other, and you absolutely, in your life, should be able to pursue both. And look, in the in the journey of a life, there are going to be different times in different places. I my kids are grown now, um, and I have you know different flexibility than I had when I was you know forty years old. Had young kids, was working very hard, hmm. you know, balancing all that. No, there wouldn't have been a lot of time for some of the things that I do now. Yeah. But I do think it's hugely important that everyone is passionate about things that that they really enjoy and that they find time to pursue their passion and it, i i i wouldn't exclude you know any activity um from 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 or separate any activity it has it has pursuing passions helps you i think be more successful more motivated more able to really lead from a business perspective Um, um, a few minutes on, on governance. As you know, we are the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund. We run the money on behalf of, of the Norwegian population. Um, now, how do you set appropriate levels of compensation in a firm like Goldman's, which is so successful? I mean, what, what is the right type of pay? And is there such a thing as too high pay? Well, I, I, I think there absolutely can be, can be too high pay. I, I think we start with a couple of base principles. First of all, we operate in a market system um, and we're evaluated on the competitiveness of the overall package we offer employees. And by the way, it's 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 pay, it's compensation, it's experience, it's long-term wealth creation, it's benefits. There's a whole package of things um, that that you're judged on every year because you can look at your attrition and you can look at how your attrition moves up and down. And I assure you, when your compensation is not competitive your attrition moves up. Yeah. And when your compensation is overly generous, your <laughs> your attrition moves down. Yeah. But the point is, it's got to be a pay-for-performance culture. And our culture is deeply rooted in pay-for-performance. When we deliver for our stakeholders, for our shareholders, um, our people are very well rewarded. And when when it doesn't, when it doesn't work, um, you know, we've got a lot of variable comp in our system. And so I think we generally get it more right than wrong. Um, but it's a very, very competitive world, competitive marketplace, and we try to strike the right balance. And we do a lot of benchmarking and a lot of, you know, very thoughtful process around thinking about that. And when we outperform, we think our people deserve to be paid better on a relative basis. And when we underperform, we believe they don't. Mm. Mm. Now, how important are the views of large institutional investors like ourselves when it comes to the decisions that you make as a CEO? Well, I, I think... You know, you've always got to be listening to your to your stakeholders, and uh, you certainly have to be listening to your shareholders, and you certainly have to be um, listening to institutional investors broadly. And it's a it's a it's a it's a data input, but I think you have to do the right things for the organization and the medium in the long term, and you have to listen to what's on everybody's mind in the short term. But generally speaking, generally speaking. You guys obviously wouldn't be in this category because you steward, 
you know, you have a steward responsibility in a different set, but generally speaking, institutional investors are very focused on this year and next. And so putting an organization like yours aside, many, many investors really want to know, they want to know what our returns are going to be in 2022 and maybe 2023. And so if I'm making investments for 2025, 2026, 2027, 2028 to really grow the firm and the franchise, there's always going to be pressure from institutions as to how is that affecting returns in the short run. And you've got to strike the right balance. You have to listen, but you have to do what you think is right for the organization in the medium and the long term. You yeah. have to take a long-term view. Yeah. Well, we for sure will do that. We um, we have at Absolutely. least a 30 of you, which is uh, pretty fantastic in this industry. Now, um, last year, we started to publish our voting intentions five days before shareholder meetings. And one of our voting principles is that the board should exercise what we call objective judgment and be able to make decisions independently of management. Now, we therefore believe that the roles of chairperson and CEO should not be held by the same individual. So, as a matter of fact, we voted against yourself being reappointed as chairman. Since you are also the CEO, why are we wrong in thinking this? Well, there are different, you know, there are different models in different places and you know, different structures. We have a lead director who, um, who you know, exerts an enormous amount of influence over the board and our processes. Um, but in the context of our business and the way we run our business, we've run it very effectively through, you know, through three leaders as a public company now where the chairman and the CEO roles were not split and we operated with a lead director. And so we think we do it very effectively. We think it works for us. Um, we think it works in the context of the way we run our governance process. There are, there are others that would choose a different process. But, you know, I think if you look at our book value growth over three years, five years, 10 years, 20 years, um, our book value growth. Um, has delivered, you know, very well. And we think the governance structure that we have in place has worked and has protected that. And so, you know, we obviously listen to inputs like those, um, but it would be a place where we have a slightly different view than you. Absolutely. <laughs> but, um, Absolutely. But, but, you know, that doesn't mean we're right or you're right. It just means we have a different view and, you know, both views are, are views that are worthy of attention and thought. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, moving on to a place where there certainly are different views, uh, capital markets. <laughs> That's kind of different views that actually make this market. Now, what uh, what is your general view on on equity and bond markets just now? And what kind of a market environment should we expect going forward? Well, we're in a little bit of a transition, obviously, because we've gone from a period, you know, if you really want to step up at a very high level, and I know you guys think about things over 30-year you know, trend periods, I think we've set the table for a broadly different environment for a meaningful period of time. And and just at a you know, at a very high level, you know, thinking about you know markets here in the US. I think about, or even you know, global markets. I think about the period after World War II, and the environment that ran after World War II up to the mid '60s, where we really were rebuilding the world, and you had a growth dynamic based on that kind of reconstruction of the you know the order coming out of World War II. Um, it shifted um, in the late '60s for a variety of reasons, and we really ran from the late '60s to the early '80s with inflation above trend, you know, very very brutal inflation in some places. Um, that obviously is 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 very you know it's punitive to economic growth. It's punitive to asset appreciation. If you go back and you look at 1970 to 1980, almost any asset you owned during that 10-year period, you know, decreased in value. If you owned U.S. equities in that 10-year period, they were worth you know close to 50% less in 1980 than they were in 1970. Interest rates were extremely high. Um, and so, you know, that was that was a certain macro environment that we all had to operate in. 
right around when I started getting out of school, 1982, 1984, we entered this environment where really for the last 35 years, interest rates have generally come down, going to make generalization, generally come down, and inflation has generally been below trend or below target. Um, there are obviously exceptions, little windows, but we've generally you know, operated in an, in an environment like that. And I think for a variety of reasons, coming out of the financial crisis and the policy action that was taken and um, was sustained um, you know, over the last decade, um, and we were just starting to work our way through that. And then we obviously had to deal with the, the, the pandemic and with COVID broadly, and there was a bunch of central bank policy action, fiscal policy action around the world. We've, we've put real inflation back into the economy. Um, I don't think it's transitory. I don't think it has to be as punitive as it was in the 1970s. But the policy decisions you know, we take from here um, will have an impact on how we kind of sort out this next period. But I think that we have, from a combination of you know, monetary and fiscal policy and also the geopolitical environment, um, I, you know, I think we've got headwinds to growth. Um, broadly, as we kind of sort through the actions that we've taken over the last 10 to 15 years, and we've set the table for, I think, a different operating environment. And I think it's going to be harder. It's been easy to earn, it's been easier to earn above trend returns mm. um, in markets. And I think we're going to go through a period where it might be harder to earn those above trend returns. But in the distribution, I think there's a greater chance that it's going to be, you know, there's going to be headwinds there. Yeah. No, I, I'm in the same camp. But if you look at um, you know inflation as it as it happens just now and and the possibility of coming back to some kind of 70s environment how long how long time do you think such a difficult period could last well part of it part of it i think um you know part of it depends on the policy actions that central banks and governments take from here and um you know it it, it this could be something that we can work our way through you know over the next 12 to 24 months it could be something that sustains longer but the policy decisions and the actions we take um, will have an impact on that that journey, and it's it's very very hard to predict. But if you look at our economic forecasts, you know they, you know we're we're a little bit more conservative on growth as you look forward into 2023. Um, you know even the second half of 2022, um, as we come out of the pandemic, I think there's all sorts of friction. There's no demand issue at the moment, but lots of you know supply friction. Um, it's going to take a while. As I talk to CEOs, it feels like it's going to take a while to work through some of that. And um, and we'll see. Money has been very, 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 very available, very, very inexpensive. It's created a lot of asset inflation, mm. um, and we're starting to unwind some of that. And uh, and you know, I think there's a scenario where we can work through it in the next couple of years. I think there's a scenario where it's harder, and you know, we have a longer term period where where growth's a little bit below trend, and and you know, it's harder to make money in a variety of asset classes as an investor in the shorter medium term. Mm. Now, as a CEO of Goldman Sachs, how negative can you actually be on the market? Well, I, I, I wouldn't say I'm negative on the market. I mean, if you, if you ask me broadly to think about the next decade, you know, I'd still be long, you know, I'd still be long equities. I'd be long U.S. equities, you know, for sure with a decade view. But you're asking more in the context of, you know, the current environment, thinking the next 12, 24, 36 months. Mm. Um, you know, you and I would agree it's been very, very easy over the last five years to be long almost any asset. Um, and generally find yourself um, in a better position in a relatively short period of time. I think there's going to be headwinds for that, but you know, generally speaking, I'm a glass half full guy. I think we find ways to grind through this stuff, and I think we'll find a way to grind through it here. I'm just not—I don't have a crystal ball to predict whether we can do that, you know, in the short term or it's going to take longer. We'll make some policy errors that create more friction. We'll, we'll have to see. 
Now, if we shift gears and talk a bit about Goldman's um, as a firm, what what is the secret sauce if you try to distill it down? The people. It's the people. Um, I mean, and how do you make sure? And how do you make sure that you continue to have the best people? Well, we work we work very very hard at it, and I I think we're extremely lucky that we've got an incredible ecosystem where mm. we're able to attract super talented people who are young and are coming out of school. I think we have one of the great um, platforms for young people to come to learn, to grow, to meet other people, to gain experience. Many of them do that for a few years, for five years, for ten years. They go off and do something else. A small slice of them stay here and build careers, mm. but. It's that it's that ecosystem of super talented people. It's a it's a collaborative culture. It's a culture of excellence mm-hmm. um, that that really helps us thrive. And we um we've we've found a model that's worked for us over a very long period of time. And we invest heavily in trying to support it. We don't always get it perfectly right, but I wake up every day feeling incredibly proud of the people of this organization, mm-hmm. how hard they work, how committed they are to excellence, how committed they are to client service. And if we can keep that differentiation, if clients continue to tell me that they really see a difference in the quality of our people, the quality of the work that they do, we'll, we'll win more than our fair share. But David, all, um, wouldn't you argue that all banks try to do that? So why are you more successful than the other banks? I, 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 I actually, I wouldn't argue that all banks try to do that. I, um, I think that some institutions... Mm. Not being specific to any, but some institutions actually think that the capital and the institution, okay, is more valuable than the people. Mm. And if this organization, our culture, our ethos, the way we run the organization, the way we think about it, of course we need capital. Of course we need technology. But if you have those things and you have really great differentiated people and you marry them together, you're able to deliver a better outcome for clients. So what type of people, so if you can choose, what, so exactly what type of characteristics are you looking for? Well, certainly, you know, certainly you want people that are smart and that are motivated um, and that are actually passionate about the work. But, you know, those are, you know, those are, those are broad things. I think that if I could boil it down to something that I've seen over and over and over again in my career, it makes a difference. It's, it's, it's grit. Hmm. There's there's a characteristic of grit and perseverance, and you know you see it when you look at people's life experiences. You sometimes you see it in people that have achieved an enormous amount in sport in yeah. some way, shape, or form because of the amount of work and perseverance and discipline you know it took to get there. Sometimes you see it because someone's had an enormous hardship in their life and they found a way to work around that, recover, and you know move forward. But I think grit's a differentiator, and you know there's you know, a, 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 a real, you know, sense of commitment to growing, to learning, um, to bringing excellence to what you do, to having kind of a journey mindset mm-hmm. where you realize, you know, your life is a journey, it's not a fixed path, and you're always trying to learn and grow and feel, you know, how can I do better? How can I self-improve? Those are characteristics I think you can look for in people. And I think when you find people that have that package often, not always, but often, you know, you can get better relative performance. Now, how do you encourage these high-performing individuals to work together effectively as teams? Well, it's 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 part of the ethos of the culture, and it 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 starts. It's one of the reasons why I've been so forward on wanting to bring people back together and bring people back in the office. We have a very young workforce, and the apprenticeship and the collaboration differentiate us, and that's much harder to do 
uh, on a remote basis. And so, mm. despite the way sometimes portrayed, I'm not I'm not zealous about the fact that everybody's got to be in the office all the time. But fundamentally, we're a collaborative, come together culture, and that differentiates us. All the things we've been talking about, and so you know, we are focused on making Goldman Sachs as good as it can be, and our goal of serving our clients at the highest level possible. And that requires us to bring people together and have them work collaboratively. And so it's it's something that's just core to how we operate and how we work and how we communicate as an organization. Mm-hmm. Very transparent organization, very communicative organization, very flat organization. How do you um, how do you measure performance then? And how do you say goodbye to the people who don't who who you don't consider good enough? Well, there there are um there are a variety of things that happen naturally in an organizational process. And so there there are, there are people that um. That, that don't keep pace or they don't find that this environment, the intensity of the environment, the, the culture of the environment, it doesn't fit them and they opt out. And, you know, often, you know, often it can be those that, that don't fit that or don't, don't want to operate in that kind of collaborative, high-performance culture. And mm. it's not for everybody, um, you know, for sure. Um, we go through a process, you know, every year where, we, where, where people are reviewed and they're evaluated by their peers, by their superiors, et cetera. We give people developmental feedback in a very active way in three conversations over the course of a year. We're constantly trying to help people grow and improve. But every year we also look and we see where there are people that we don't think are performing at the level that we want. And we, you know, we, we have a process of, you know, going through and always trying to strengthen and upgrade the organization. Mm. Now, um, despite that, you have been um, really vocal in terms of trying to get people to have a better kind of work-life balance. Do you want to tell us just what you've been doing here? Well, it's, you know, one of the things that's changed, and I've observed this, I've talked a lot about it, you know, over the course of the last, you know, 10 plus years, because this started, you know, in, in, in my mind, I started thinking about this differently when I became the head of investment banking back in 2006. So we're talking about 15 years ago at this point. But when I started in the business, I got out of school in 1984. And when I started in the business in 1984, it was a, it was a very different thing. When you worked very hard, but the moment you walked out of the office, you were done. There were no cell phones. There were no pagers. There was no BlackBerry. There was no iPhone. You were done. The only way somebody could get a hold of you was to call you at your home phone. And by the way, then you had to pick up the phone because we all had answering machines. And so you could screen your calls and you could very well not be home. even if you were home. And so those were the days. Those were the days there were boundaries that were created and the world moved at a different pace. But the technology which obviously advances and you can't go backward leaves us all completely connected 24/7. And that's a hard thing for people to manage and I think particularly as people come out of school and they go out of university and they go into you know the professional workforce it's a skill to learn to manage that connectivity responsibly. It's a skill to learn how to strike the balance and create boundaries. We talked about speed and responsiveness. I think that matters, but setting boundaries and giving yourself a healthy balance so that you can have one you you can you can continue to do this for a long time. You can be healthy. You can you can do it in a sustainable way. That's something you have to work at. And so we've tried over over time to create boundaries, give people guidelines and try to help people get their life set up in a way where you can work very, very hard. You know, we're not going to shy away from the fact that this is a place where people work very hard and there's obviously a lot of opportunity that comes out of that, but also there have to be boundaries and it has to be done in a sustainable way. Mm -hmm. 
Now, um, just moving into the last portion here, um, we got a lot of young, um, young listeners and students. What generally is your advice to these guys? Because they all want to be the CEO of Goldman Sachs one day. Well, or, I mean, or the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund. What, what should they be doing? <laughs> well, I, I think first of all, as a, as, as a young person, um, it's important to do a couple of you know, really, really base things. You know, find a place where you can go work with with great people, where you can learn, where you can grow, where you can build a personal and professional network, um, and kind of put your head down and don't be in a hurry. Um, it's a long journey, and you don't know where it's going to take you. And you know, certainly, I never I never aspired to be the CEO of Goldman Sachs. In fact, when I was coming out of school, I interviewed for Goldman Sachs and I didn't get a job. When I was out of school for a year and a half, I interviewed at Goldman Sachs to get a job laterally and I didn't get a job. So, you know, I wasn't offered a job at Goldman Sachs until I was in my late 30s. So <laughs> that's what we call, that's, that's what you call grit. Well, I mean, it's, I found a path um, into the business. Um, I found that I really enjoyed the business. I enjoyed the people interaction. I enjoyed the, the, um, the intellectual stimulation. I enjoyed the fact that every day was different. I enjoyed the fact that I was learning and growing and meeting people. And so whatever you choose to pursue, you know, find something that interests you, take a long-term view, um, don't be in a hurry, uh, and just remember that it's not a straight line. It's, uh, you know, it's a journey with its ups and downs, and um, you never know, you know, what, what's going to come your way, but there'll be lots of interesting choices, you know, along the road. Be patient, work hard, be persistent, have grit. <laughs> I've heard you say um, once that uh, if you are happy two-thirds of the time, that's good enough. Um, I, I really believe this, you know, professionally. I, I tell a story, it's an anecdotal story, um, about a woman who I knew who came into my office who had been at the firm for a couple of years, and she came into my office. I happened to know her, I knew her growing up as a child, so she came to, you know, she came to see me, um, and... Um, and she said to me, I want to, I want to talk about, you know, what I'm going to do next. Um, and I said to her, okay, that's great. But let me ask you a little bit about what you're doing. You know, how do you like your job? Oh, I love it. The work's so interesting, super interesting. I, 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 I find it really motivating. I like what I'm doing. I really like the work. I'm like, that's great. How do you like your boss? And this was a, this was a young woman. Oh my God, she's amazing. I feel so lucky that I, you know, I'm being mentored by a senior woman who's experienced and, and she really watches out for me and she's teaching me and I really like working for her. And I was like, that's great. How do you like the people you're working with? Oh my goodness, I've made so many new friends. You know, we go out on, at night and on the weekends and we work really hard together and we go have fun. I mean, it's, I really feel so lucky. It's such an amazing group of people. My advice was go back to work. <laughs> you know, yeah. if all those things are working, you know, keep going and see what, see what comes. Why, why would you take yourself off a track where you're enjoying it, you're learning, you like who you work for, you like who you're working with, you know, let let it let it play out a little bit. Be a little be a little bit more patient and stay with it because generally speaking in a career, there are lots of times when you don't have those things. You don't like some of the people you're working with. You don't like your boss. I think one of the great lessons that everyone has to work through in a career is when you're working for someone and you don't like working for them. And the easy thing to do is to just quit or walk away from it. The better thing to do is to figure out how to make it work and to try to see what you can learn from, from that dynamic. And so I think if you've got it kind of working, if you feel good about it, you know, most of the time, two-thirds of the time, as you say, 75% of the time, you're probably in a pretty good place. 
David, I think that's fantastic advice and a great place to end. Thank you so much for joining us today and all the best going forward. Thank you, Nikolai. It was great to be with you. Good to see you. Absolutely. Take care now. <laughs>